With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before we get to this week's episode, I wanted to let you know that this podcast miniseries is a companion to my new book, The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. It's available wherever you buy books. And now, on to the show. Previously on The Queen, in 1964... Linda Taylor claimed her name was Constance Wakefield and that she was the heir to a gambling kingpin's vast fortune. The ensuing court hearing proved that Taylor was lying. But so were Taylor's white relatives, who considered her parentage a secret that needed to be hidden. I certainly knew, based upon these members of the family talking about this horrible thing that they considered a a shame in the family that the, the county's real father was black. Taylor was effectively disowned because she was mixed race. She'd spend the rest of her life latching on to other people's families. Sometimes she helped them. More often, she took advantage of them. When I started reporting on Linda Taylor, One of the first people I spoke to was her ex-husband, Lamar Jones. Taylor and Jones knew each other for less than a week before they got married in August 1974. About a week after their wedding, Taylor got arrested for welfare fraud. Their marriage broke up another few weeks after that, when Taylor stole Jones's TV set and fled to Arizona. When I talked to Jones on the phone, he had no idea whether Taylor was alive. He hadn't heard a word from her since their brief dalliance in the 1970s. In the course of my research, I made contact with dozens of people who knew Linda Taylor personally. Other than Taylor's children, I didn't encounter a single soul who'd stayed in contact with her for a long stretch of time. The story was always the same. Taylor emerged from out of nowhere, upended everything in her path, then vanished without leaving a forwarding address. In the final episode of this series, I'm going to tell two stories about the lives Linda Taylor changed. The first takes place in the 1950s and 60s, the second in the 1970s and 80s. More than any news articles or court records, these accounts of what it was like to know Linda Taylor allowed me to imagine what she may have thought and felt. In one case, I learned that she was capable of helping those in need. The other showed me that Taylor was willing and able to destroy the people she claimed to love. This is The Queen, a show about the woman behind the welfare queen myth. I'm Josh Levine. Episode 4, Bobby and Diana. In 1953, Avalon and Annie Mae Moore and their six children made a big move. I was six years old. And we rode on the back of a pickup truck that had a bed on it. We children were in the back with our father. That's Bobby Moore Lanier. She's the second oldest of the Moore kids. And in our mind, we thought, oh, my God, this is a long, long trip. But my adult memory 
tells us that from the part of Mississippi we moved from to Blytheville, Arkansas, was only like four or six hours' drive. The Moors moved from Mississippi to Arkansas because Avalon, the family's patriarch, had found work picking cotton on a plantation. Bobby and her three oldest siblings worked with their father in the fields, which meant they didn't go to school all that often. Their mother, Annie Mae, stayed at home with the younger children and managed the household. The Moors had no electricity in their small house, so in the evenings they'd gather around the wood-burning stove for warmth. We were a southern family, southern black family, very close, My father was wonderful with the harmonica, and we'd do riddles. Mother would uh, make up riddles, and in the evening time, we would talk and have maybe popcorn that she had grown. It was simple fun, but it was rich fun. Avalon Moore thought sharecropping would bring his family some stability. But every year, the plantation overseer would tell him that he was in debt and that he couldn't leave until he paid back what he owed. It was a system that kept people trying and trying, and I would say as an adult, it was the killer of dreams if you believed it and stayed there trying to do better. There was no doing better. For the Moors, life was pretty much the same year after year, until one day in 1956 or 57, when a big Oldsmobile pulled up outside their house. This lady came by in a station wagon None of us had ever seen her before, but she saw us kids out playing in the yard, I guess. So she stopped by to inquire to see, you know, who we were or whatever. And that was the first time of Mother and Daddy and any of us ever meeting Connie. The Moors had no idea where Connie had come from. They'd never seen her at their worship services or in the cotton fields. She didn't look like anyone Bobby had ever seen before. Our take on her, we were trying to kind of figure out, is she white? Is she black? Is she, what is she? Connie would later become known as Linda Taylor. When she met the Moors, she was around 30 years old, and she seemed to have a new last name every time she came by to visit. She introduced herself as Connie Caskey, and I think the next time we saw her, it was Connie Harbaugh, then Connie um, Elliott. There was three or four names that was thrown out there, and that made us wonder even more, okay, who is this person, and why are they changing so much? (laughs) Regardless of all those last names, Bobby's mother, Annie Mae, wasn't all that suspicious of Connie. The two women became fast friends. You know, she was kind of a fiery person where, oh, Annie Mae, come on, let's do this. Annie Mae, you should do this and that. She was quick and persuasive. And if you weren't on your cues, you'd jump and run before you'd say, where are we going? You know, it's like her brain was on a track that I've got plans and I'm well into the way of executing them. So that's kind of how Connie rolled. Connie was always talking about money and how to get it. She told Avalon and Annie Mae that they should use their children to obtain government benefits. She was kind of talking to mother and daddy about how they can come up in certain ways financially. My mother said, Man, no, we're okay, we're good. And mom would say, you know, all money is not good money, Connie. The Moors typically didn't take Connie up on her advice. But there would soon come a time when their friends' machinations would prove extremely useful. We children were up at the garden with mother, and we were gathering vegetables and green beans and and different produce from the garden. And Mother asked me to take the green, a big, big dishpan of green beans, take them to the house. 
empty them on the table and bring the pan back. On her way back to the house, Bobby, who was then 12 years old, saw her father standing next to the plantation overseer. I saw the man hold a pistol to dad's head. A few moments later, she watched her father get into a truck with the overseer, the white man who controlled the family's livelihood. The truck then sped away, kicking up dust until it zoomed out of sight. I thought he was taking him off to kill him. Bobby ran back to her mother, almost hyperventilating as she explained what she'd seen. Annie Mae Moore tried to keep Bobby and the rest of her children from panicking, but they could tell that she was worried. Annie Mae told them to climb down into a roadside irrigation ditch and to keep their voices down. She led them through that ditch and across a river to a friendly white family's house. The younger children stayed there while Annie Mae went on to her friend Connie's place. Connie had a car. She gave Annie Mae a ride to the police station. When they arrived, Annie Mae told the white policeman what she and her children had seen and heard and feared. Her mother made the report, and they told Mom, said, well, if they kill him, come back and let us know. Annie Mae thought her husband might already be dead, and that no one was going to do anything about it. And Connie said her, her phraseology is, oh, to hell with this. We're going to go take care of that ourselves. <laughs> Annie Mae and Connie got back in the car, picked up the kids, and went back to the Moore's home. When they got there, they found Avalon sitting on the front porch. Bobby hadn't seen what she thought she'd seen. That white man, the plantation boss, had stuck his finger, not a gun, in her father's face. The boss had reeked of alcohol, and he had been yelling about all the money Avalon owed him. Avalon Moore had no choice but to endure the abuse. He couldn't risk upsetting a drunk and angry white man. He'd done as he was told, hoisting himself into the back of the boss's truck. They'd ended up outside a backwood shack on a plot of mosquito-infested land. The overseer told Avalon that was where he'd have to live if he didn't repay his debt. Avalon explained all this to his wife, telling her he hadn't been in mortal danger. Annie Mae wasn't having it. She was done with sharecropping and done with the feeling that she couldn't protect her children. So mother said, Avalon, we're leaving. We're gone. We're done with this way of life. Avalon resisted. He told Annie Mae that they could break even if they worked on the plantation for just one more season. At this point, Connie made her opinion known. She said, oh, Avalon, come on, don't be such a scared ass. <laughs> Avalon Moore stepped inside his house, grabbed his favorite cap off a nail on the wall, and squeezed into Connie's station wagon with his wife and children. The Moores would never see their home again, and they were abandoning all their possessions. They'd made the choice to put their lives in Connie's hands. That night, Connie took the Moores across the state line to Missouri, dropping them off in a town none of them had seen before. They'd hide out there for a few days, staying in a place that Connie had set up. She would go and bring, bring us food, some apples sometimes. She would bring little fruit here and there and uh, sodas, you know, in the bottle. <laughs> she provided for us. She always seemed to have had means. She wasn't flamboyant, but it seemed that she was resourceful where she could get it if it needed to be gotten. Eventually, the men who ran the plantation tracked down the Moors and demanded that they return to Arkansas. 
Bobby saw the whole confrontation through a window. When things got heated, it was Connie who stepped forward. She wasn't a real tall lady, but she was standing with her face up and her hand on her hips. Hell yeah, I brought them up here. They're my guests, you know? <laughs> and I'm thinking, ooh, <laughs> look at that girl go. <laughs> Thanks to Connie, the bosses backed off. She knew how to do what had to be done, and she didn't have fear. She didn't cower or mince her words like, oh, well, uh, maybe this or maybe. No, she was a definitive person in stating straightforward what it was going to be. Bobby had never seen anyone speak to a white person that way. She thought Connie could get away with yelling at the bosses because her skin was lighter. Connie also seemed to know that there was a bigger world out there, that their lives could be better somewhere else. The Moors had come to that conclusion, too. A bunch of Annie Mae's relatives had left the South, moving to Peoria, Illinois. After that standoff with the plantation bosses, they all decided it was time to head north. Avalon traveled ahead of his family on the bus. Annie Mae and the kids made the 400-mile trip to Peoria in Connie's station wagon. Connie and the Moors would stay connected in Peoria, but in the late 1950s and early 1960s, Connie became obsessed with hatching shady financial schemes. At one point, she filed a phony legal claim alleging that her children were injured in an explosion at their elementary school and tried to enlist the Moors to play along. As time went on, it's almost anything that would happen, it would turn into a financial trying to secure finances as a result of it and encouraging others to do so. She was driving somewhere, she'd throw on a brake. I hope you will hit me, I'll sue your ass, you know. One night, Annie Mae complained to her husband, Avalon, about their friend's fixation on money. Annie Mae didn't realize that Connie overheard everything she said. So the next morning, Connie told Mother, said, Annie Mae, I heard what you said to Avalon last night about me wanting money and needing money and everything leads to money and how you don't like that. And Mother said, you know, no, I, I, don't, I don't like that. You know, that seems to be your main driving point with everything is money. Bobby says there wasn't a huge blow-up, but Connie clearly felt betrayed. She walked out the door when she was done talking with Annie Mae. We never saw her again after that. Bobby Moore Lanier is 72 years old now. It's been almost 60 years since she last saw her mother's friend, Connie. Before I reached out to Bobby, she hadn't known that Connie later became famous as Linda Taylor, the welfare queen. Bobby also had no idea that Taylor was a kidnapper or that she'd been suspected of murder. I feel on some levels that, wow, you guys could have dodged a bullet, yet I don't know where the bullet would have been coming from. Bobby isn't sure why Connie helped them escape from Arkansas. It's possible she was planning to victimize the Moors at some point down the road. Or maybe, when she confronted those plantation bosses, she was simply doing what she wished someone had done for her. Or perhaps there's some other explanation. You know, the word sometimes says, be careful how you entertain strangers. For in so doing, you entertain angels unaware. Now, <laughs> I don't know how long angels are on the scene, if it can be years or just momentary snippets or just what. But at that time and in the way that she assisted us, I feel there was some divinity at work somehow. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This podcast series was made possible with support from Slate Plus members. What does that mean in practice? Well, the thing is, it takes a ton of time to make good journalism. I've been working on the Linda Taylor story for more than six years, I took a year off from my job at Slate to dig even deeper, doing research for my book. And for this podcast series, I did more than a dozen new interviews. It isn't easy for an organization like Slate to make a long-term commitment to this kind of investigation. The ads you hear on the podcast help us pay the bills, but the reality is that they don't fully support our costs. If we want to expand and improve our coverage, if we want to invest in more projects like The Queen, We depend on the financial support we get from readers and from listeners like you. So please consider becoming a Slate Plus member. It costs just $35 for your first year and comes with a suite of great perks, like ad-free versions of all Slate podcasts and discounts to our live events. We're also making two bonus episodes of The Queen that will be available exclusively to our members. Most importantly, you'll help make projects like The Queen possible. So join Slate Plus today Try it free for two weeks by going to slate.com slash plus. That's slate.com slash plus. In 1976, 15 years after Bobby Moore Lanier saw Linda Taylor for the last time, Diana Ray Hibbler was growing up on the south side of Chicago. She lived with her grandparents. She also spent a lot of time with her uncle, Sherman Ray. She calls Sherman Jelly. He got that nickname when he was a kid because he loved eating jelly sandwiches. He used to babysit me and have me watching soap operas. He told me they were educational. (laughs) He would always, like, bake me some chicken noodle soup and peanut butter and jelly. He was always sweet and laughing. Sherman had fought in Vietnam. When he came back from the war, he drank a lot. People could manipulate him when he was drunk. If somebody asked him for some money, he probably would have gave it to him, you know, without even questioning them. Or if anybody asked him to do something, he probably would have did it without question. Because the next day, he wouldn't remember, you know, that he did it. The Rays all lived close together, and they'd see each other every weekend. One of those weekends, Sherman brought by someone new. Jelly brought Linda with him and he introduced her to us as being his wife. And it really shocked everybody, because everybody was like, well, who is Linda? And then my dad and and Jelly were so close, you know, my dad didn't even know. So it was like, where did she come from? Sherman Ray and Linda Taylor got married in January 1976. Ray was 27, and Taylor was 50, though their marriage license indicated she was 29. The Ray family didn't know anything about Taylor or how the two had met. But while the Rays were shocked by Sherman's marriage, they initially gave Linda Taylor the benefit of the doubt. Diana liked her new aunt right away. She was very confident. You could tell she was used to having things. She never bit her tongue or backed down. 
She was very classy. And um, she was very nice to me. About five months after Taylor came onto the scene, Sherman's brother, Johnny Ray, drowned after hitting his head on a boat propeller. That same evening, Diana went to spend the night with her Aunt Linda and Uncle Sherman. But instead of us going directly to the house, I remember we went to the morgue. Without the family's permission, Linda Taylor told the staff at the morgue that she'd be handling the arrangements, ordering them to release Johnny Ray's body to a particular funeral home. Diana's grandfather, Raymond Ray, was shocked when he found out what Taylor had done. I know he was livid. He was so upset, and he was cussing and stuff. That was what really took everybody over the edge, that incident. It it really put a bad taste in everybody's mouth. After the funeral, the family gathered at the house where Diana lived with her grandparents. And I remember um, Linda asked me, did I want to spend a night? And I told her yes, and she told me to go get some clothes. So I you know, ran upstairs to my room, and I put a couple of clothes in a, in a bag. And um, I went with her to her house. And when we got there, um, I know the next morning she had me to throw away my clothes. Um, and she took me and bought me new clothes and, you know, toys and stuff. Seems kind of unnecessary for her to throw your clothes in the garbage. That's what I see it. <laughs> <laughs> Linda Taylor had effectively kidnapped the eight-year-old Diana. But Diana didn't know that. Despite her clothes getting tossed in the trash, she was having a fantastic time with her aunt. Taylor cooked her breakfast and gave her hugs. Diana's Uncle Sherman wasn't around, but at that point she didn't think much of it. Meanwhile... Diana's grandfather was searching for her frantically. He knew Taylor had taken his grandchild, but when he went to the house where he thought Taylor was living, he found the place empty. Diana doesn't know exactly how long she stayed with Taylor, whether it was a couple of days or a whole week. But eventually, her uncle Sherman showed up at the house. Then, late at night, Diana was woken up by the sound of her grandfather shouting her name. Sherman had told him where they were staying, and Diana's grandfather had brought a police officer as backup. The police put his jacket around me, and my grandfather picked me up and carried me to the car. Diana had a hard time believing it when her grandfather told her she'd been kidnapped. I guess I was shocked, because to me, she was nice and loving. I didn't see what they saw, because she treated me very nicely. Um, but when he told me that, boy, he scared me so, talking about she was in the voodoo and witchcraft, and I, I needed to stay away from her. Diana wasn't totally convinced that her aunt was into voodoo and witchcraft, but she did follow her grandfather's orders to stay away from Linda Taylor. I, I couldn't, like, once we came home from school or whatever, we were not able to leave out the house until, like, an adult came home. And that was new because of Linda? Yes. All of this was happening while Linda Taylor was awaiting trial for welfare fraud. A year later, in 1977, she'd be found guilty. Taylor went to prison in February 1978. Diana was nine years old. I heard that she had got convicted and was, you know, going to jail. Other than that, I didn't hear nothing else about it until um, one day I got the mail out the mailbox and I saw a letter um, addressed to me from her. She was writing how she didn't do what the people 
you know, was saying she did. And at that time, I didn't know what exactly she had did. But I remember when my grandfather came home, you know, the next day I was telling him I got a letter from Linda. And apparently that wasn't the first letter she had wrote because he said for me to give him the letter and that he, you know, had threw the rest of them away. Taylor was released from prison in 1980. Diana didn't see her when she got out. The girl's grandfather succeeded in keeping them apart. A couple of years later, her Aunt Linda and Uncle Jelly moved away to a small town outside Chicago called Moments, Illinois. In August 1983, Diana was at home asleep when she heard a loud knock on the door. It, it was Michael, who was Jelly's best friend, and he came over and he was like, you could tell he was scared. But he sat there and he just broke down and cried and told my grandfather that my uncle was murdered. Sherman Ray's friend, Michael Booker, explained that Sherman had been killed by a much older man. Jelly wasn't doing anything. You know, they were outside, you know, they were drinking and stuff. And him and Jelly had words. And the man, next thing you know, Michael said the man came and shot him in the chest. The man who shot and killed Sherman Ray was named Will True Lloyd. Taylor claimed that Lloyd was her father. I was scared, and I I was wondering why would she let that happen? You know, let her dad, you know, shoot him like that. Will True Lloyd wasn't actually Taylor's father, though none of the Rays knew that at the time. What they did know was that Sherman's best friend, Michael Booker, thought Taylor was responsible for her husband's death. Because if you would have saw him and how scared he was... It made me feel like, wow, you know, she might really not be a good person. He was, you could tell he was terrified. Linda Taylor and Will True Lloyd were never charged with any crimes in connection with Sherman Ray's death. Ray had been drunk at the time of the shooting, and Lloyd claimed he'd acted in self-defense. The lead detective in the case also couldn't get any witnesses to tell him what they'd seen. Michael Booker, who died in 2000, never told the authorities what he told the Rays. We never saw him again. Never. It's like, as my grandfather said, he fell off the face of the earth. Nobody could find him. Linda Taylor also vanished after her husband's funeral. She eventually collected on two life insurance policies that had been taken out in Sherman Ray's name. Taylor also moved to Florida with Will True Lloyd, the man who'd killed her husband. Diana, who's now 51, didn't have any idea what had become of Taylor. I mean, now that I know the things that I know, I think that she was an opportunistic, you know. Um, I think she did what she did to get what she want. I think she took advantage of people. I mean, I don't know if she was into witchcraft and stuff like my grandfather and them said, but based on what I've heard that she's done... I can understand, you know, him saying that and that she was an evil woman. It's hard to argue with anyone who comes to the conclusion that Linda Taylor was evil. But the more I've learned about her, the less willing I am to describe her in such simple terms. Throughout her life, Taylor found herself at the center of a bunch of reductive storylines. The Chicago Tribune gave her a nickname that impugned all welfare recipients. Ronald Reagan said that she was proof that public aid programs didn't work. Her family in the South 
believed her race was reason enough to toss her aside. The truth about Taylor is more complicated than anyone ever saw fit to acknowledge. She was opportunistic, and she did take advantage of people. But no matter how many documents I dig up or people I track down, I don't think I'm ever going to figure out precisely why. I uncovered a lot of information about Linda Taylor over the last six years. But in death, as in life, she always feels just a bit out of reach. She did bizarre and inexplicable things, and she did them repeatedly over decades. Her actions were never typical or representative of anything but herself. Anyone who claims otherwise is making a huge mistake. This is the final episode of The Queen. The series was written by me, Josh Levine, and produced by Emma Morgenstern. Editorial direction from Lowen Liu and Gabriel Roth. Merritt Jacob mixed this episode and wrote some of the music in the series. You can subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. It would also be great if you could rate and review the show. It helps other people find it. And you can email us at thequeen@slate.com. This podcast series is a companion to my book, which is called The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. It's on sale wherever you buy books. Special thanks to June Thomas, Melissa Kaplan, Daniel Hewitt, Asha Saluja, Benjamin Frisch, Jared Holt, Vicki Gann, Megan Wiegand, TJ Raphael, Lisa Larson-Walker, Katie Rayford, Jeff Friedrich, Jessica Seidman, Leonard Roberge, Aliyah Hanna-Habib, Vanessa Mobley, Alyssa Persons, Sabrina Callahan, Pamela Brown, and the team at Little Brown and Hachette Book Group U.S. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.